You're listening to the 10th episode of Season 2 of The Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast goes into a strict Christian upbringing and traditional isolationist church climate not working out, but is not intended as an attack on faith. In fact, it is mainly about trying to retain some connection to God despite everything. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my life that occasioned the writing of a song from my concept album, Peter Gray Grows Up. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 10, A Chance to Backslide For someone found drunk in the gutter at 6 a.m. in a pile of misery in his own vomit, picked up, brought out to a gospel meeting, brilliantly converted to Brethren Christianity and soon turned into a tan pants-wearing, business-casual teetotaler giving monthly talks about this evil world and the soul ruination it brings, coming out five times weekly to Brethren Sinners Anonymous meetings, backsliding would be to fall off the wagon, get raging drunk, and end up back in that gutter, awash in vomit and misery. For me, it would have been quite different. Having earned some hard-won freedom to simply pursue art, friends, liberty, and entertainment, backsliding would have been to put myself, as the Apostle warned not to do, back under their power, which he says he would not do, no, not even for one hour, as their approach to God was a wrong-headed, simple-minded method of touch-not-taste-not-handle-not-stream-not-download-not-click-not-like-not-subscribe-not. Nothing good down that path. Putting myself back under all that, removing all the social and creative stuff I was doing and enjoying, to rejoin the endless round of meetings twice during a week and thrice on Sundays, always winter and never Christmas, everyone's eyes on everyone trying to keep God from speaking in a fatal manner through works of keeping carefully denied brethren laws, falling back into the waiting arms or jaws of depression. Now, for me, that would have been backsliding. Somehow, Despite everything and everyone, I still believed in God, and I believed in one who had better things in mind for me than that bubblegum pink church icing on my fajitas, more than that paranoid competitive piety through lifestyle pleasure purges. I believed in a God who had created in me and worked in me a release from all of that despite my best efforts to try to work within that system. That system had been incredibly narrow, superstitious, brittle, and inflexible, so the last remnants of it kicked out me and all of my friends and family over the intervening years, lest we split it down the middle, again. To the folks in my brethren church group, though, no doubt it seemed like their magic castle of protection against the dangerous, evil world and God's judgment for having meddled in it alike was something only a fool would leave, thus exposing his foolish life to all manner of ruin and chaos. To me... It seemed like the magic castle had been revealed to have been made of cardboard all along, had been torn down the middle recently, and we were supposed to congregate in that hastily taped-together, dilapidated less-than-half that was left, imagining huddling up in a torn cardboard box would keep the rain off. Better off simply going and standing under a tree or something. I think I started to see the cardboard walls, the make-believe nature of our mighty impregnable fortress, in my teens. It was all talk and image— the more I tried to live it, use it, do it, the more it let me down. It was ornamental. To be given lip service and respect to, not actually leaned on or anything, because it manifestly did not work when trouble came down. My upbringing had worked to ensure I had no comfort, no place in what it pejoratively called the world. 
That had worked. If there had ever been any risk of nearsighted, bookish, morbid, odd little me fitting in at school and making comfortable, easy friendships, they were heaven-bent on training that out of me. I really didn't fit at school and felt that very keenly. It was my first experience of depression, huddled in bed crying to the heavens for an answer as to what exactly was it that was obviously so wrong with me. Depression felt like having never quite been myself before, and not being welcome to be it anywhere at all anyway, not having a place, being between everything, no place to stand, not having an identity, yet having the wrong one somehow. Well, in my early teens, when I really started to feel how much I also didn't fit in in the brethren group I'd sacrificed everything for, when girls were told not to talk to me, when I didn't want to look and act and talk anything like those preppy brethren teenagers, I felt that even more. Further depression and wallowing in self-loathing and blame. Was our Christian group not big enough to have more than one kind of person there? Apparently not. That left me with no place to be. It left me with no self to be. I knew a few guys at meeting who shared my lack of interests, but their friendship wasn't deep or enough for me. It was based on not fitting in there. And those couple of guys here or there in the meeting, despite being very nice, and it being very nice to have people to talk to and hang out with, didn't share many of my interests. They certainly didn't think or feel like me. They weren't bothered by what bothered me. They weren't headed where I was headed. They didn't need what I needed. They were not creatives. They didn't like me meeting new meeting people either. It's a very odd thing to outgrow friends and not really have new ones yet. The Pennsylvania group was amazing, because for a while there, I really thought I fit, like I had a place, like I had people, a group, and I'd been raised to need one of those, us against the world, but I didn't fit, not really. Again, I had the wrong nationality, last name, personality, everything. My participation wasn't blind or uncritical either. We shared an interest in finding something better than our assemblies, but because we wanted to simply unearnedly claim that we had found that something and not wait to make sure it functioned before making that kind of claim, we just managed to make something every bit as arrogant and dysfunctional as the original it was meant to be an alternative to. Again, it, we, were all talk and image. The new, better, more spiritual, more scriptural answers and approaches to life were always just around the corner. Once again, none of it worked. It was nothing you could hang your mentia on. In my first couple of years teaching high school where I work now, I was repeatedly given the smart grade 10s. And I was told to give them a specific selection of short stories, including Hugh Gardner's The Father, about a well-meaning drunk who embarrasses his son at a Boy Scout meeting. The assignment I was to give them was for students to write a short piece laying out the awesome choices and successes of their own parents. Knowing the town and the parents and believing that that kind of assignment is an invitation to pages of empty feel-good bullshit, I amended the wording of the assignment sheet very slightly. When it hit the desks, my paper invited students to write a short piece laying out the awesome choices and successes, or else the poor choices and failures, of their own parents. What came back was very revealing. Virtually all students went with the failures, and they were only 15 years old. And none of them had had children yet in not being that kind of class of students, yet they could write page upon page, ruthlessly, accurately, heartlessly dissecting all of their parents' many, many mistakes. And it wasn't just childish complaining. It was troublingly mature and objective, a clinical breakdown of parents' poor dating, career, childhood management, wardrobe, financial, and personal choices. And I thought, 
You guys are the global experts on how much and in how many different ways your parents didn't always make good choices, yet you demonstrate no understanding whatsoever about how hard it is to be a parent or how easy it is to make mistakes of this kind. You also don't have any clear picture of what you'd do instead if you were in their shoes. So of course I told them this, because I'm like that. Now this didn't mean they were wrong about a single mistake they'd pointed out, because they weren't. But that was 15 years ago, so they're all 30 now. I'll bet some of them are doing no better than their parents did, and if they're not just repeating those extremely hard not-to-repeat mistakes, are finding entirely 21st century ways to screw up and fail and traumatize their own kids. A couple of them have kids that are teenagers now. My own generation was like that too, only on a larger scale. My Pennsylvania circle of friends were that way about our parents, society, and church. We deconstructed our birth culture like Kevin Smith deconstructing 80s movies, and then, like Kevin Smith once the 90s were all over, we too found we could build nothing much to better all that stuff we'd been commenting on, mocking, and deconstructing. It's easier to toss a big hunk of dog crap or a rock at a church's stained glass window because you don't like what it depicts than it is to make your own church with its own stained glass windows with beautiful art that shares what's reached you. So I went back to Warner Brothers two days later and sat down with the dude and he was like, what'd you think? I said, well, it was really quite bad. And he was like, well, bad meaning good? And I said, no, bad, just fucking terrible. And he said, he's looking at me, and I'm, I'm just going on for about five minutes how bad the script is. And I was like, do you pay somebody to write this? Is this somebody's, the writer of this script, somebody's fucking cousin? Because who lets somebody write this script? Do somebody, you pay this dude? Can you get the money back? Because this is horrendous, dude, horrendous. And he was looking at me, nodding and going, all right, well, thanks for coming in. So I left, and I was driving home. I got home and I called my friend Walters back in Jersey and he's a big comic book fan. And I was like, dude, I just went into Warner Brothers and told him their script for Superman sucked. Ah. <laughs> rebel, rebel, Jersey represent. Ah. <laughs> Hollywood. Ah. And Walters like, well, why don't you just offer to write a better version? And I was like, ah. Because <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. I said, F- But it didn't matter because the next day I got a call from my agent. He was like, hey, they want to see you at Warner Brothers again. I said, really? All right. So I went back, and it was the same dude that I talked to originally, the same studio exec. And then there was another dude in the room with him. So I sat down with him, and the first guy was like, glad you came back. Do me a favor. Tell him what you told me about Superman, about the script. And I was like, "Um, all right. It's bad. sucks. Did your cousin write it? Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Did that for about five minutes, and then they both just nodded at me quietly. And then they're like... All right, well, thanks for coming in. <laughs> so I went back home. Next day, I got another call from my agent going, they want to meet with you at Warner Brothers again. I said, all right. Because I really didn't have much to do. So I go back into the room, and it's that dude, the second dude, and now there's a third dude in the room. And they're all in a semicircle chairs, and they put me in one chair, and the first guy's like, tell the, tell the two guys, tell this guy what you told us about the Superman script. And they're all like, tell him, tell Lorenzo what you told us about Superman. And so I launch into my spiel. And Lorenzo was the first guy who was like, well, what would you do differently? And I said, um, well, I hadn't thought about it, but I mean, I guess you could try this, 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 and that, and that. And he's nodding and And he's like, well, you know what? We're going to give a shot at it. And I said, all right, awesome. We spent our youths making fun of and also loving Star Trek and Star Wars and a host of dated old 60s, 70s, and 80s TV shows and movies. And then once we approached middle age, 
we were so opinionated as a generation that the money people trusted us to do new good versions of Star Wars, Star Trek, and Starsky and Hutch, Charlie's Angels, Knight Rider, the A-Team, and all the rest of it, just as if a crop of aging Gen Xers with garage bands were going to be asked to re-record the Beatles' White Album, Jimi Hendrix's Are You Experienced, Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited, and Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, only better, properly, for the 21st century, because the originals are so cringy to listen to now so dated and made with such inferior technology compared to what we have now. We'll just throw money at it. That should work, right? You're going to love our new, better, more diverse version of Led Zeppelin 4. Well, my generation is awfully good at disrespecting the past while not having any good ideas of its own. Kevin Smith was an absolute hilarious scalpel-precise lampooner of the status quo. Then he successfully became the status quo. He's no different and no better, and he knows it. That's how my generation has often been, feeling confident for no reason whatsoever that we could do better at everything. Now, Keith Richards, John Lennon, and Roger Waters were driven by a need to express their thoughts and feelings in song structure. They fired out song after song like bullets that flew straight to the top of the charts. They loved what people in the past had done and tried to learn how to do it and use some of the same stuff to express what they themselves had to say. And they had things to say. They started with the idea then tried to sell what resulted. George Lucas and Gene Roddenberry and everybody all started with new ideas, ideas that were certainly not primarily cooked up because they sounded like they'd be easy to sell in China. Nowadays, we talk about what old ideas we think we could buy the rights to and sell in some form to be decided upon later. And we start aggressively selling new movies, the plots of which aren't created yet, as can clearly be seen in the end product. Those old guys started with a story or an idea. Nowadays, content providers produce and Disney Plus streams content daily. Stories to be focus grouped and come up with shortly before filming or perhaps while editing afterward. Or perhaps to be largely left up to the fans to cook up themselves after the closing credits roll and all the continuity problems come back to them and need more story to glue the whole thing back together again in their heads. Hunters don't see a deer, aim the gun, and then decide as an afterthought that they ought to maybe make a bullet to fit their rifle. What my generation is doing is like going deer hunting with a tube of toothpaste and expecting it is going to work the same as a bow or a rifle. Only two of those three options are likely to reliably hit a target you're sighting at across a field. The other one is going to ooze sticky goop everywhere with no heart in it, no lasting impact, no plan or goal apart from keeping a steady stream of that goop oozing out all the time, streaming endlessly. It's kind of like chicken. A stand-up comic once said that if you want to eat a really high-quality chicken dinner and be healthy, maybe don't eat it right out of a paper bucket without looking at it while watching TV. Maybe the best chicken dinners aren't sold in buckets, aren't sold by the bucket. Quantity and ease of accessibility do not seem to be quality's best friend after all. My generation has dropped the ball. We knew better than our parents and teachers how to raise and educate kids, did we? Because we knew all the mistakes they made with us. Well, how calm, emotionally healthy, grounded, resilient, competent, and confident are our kids as a body? How have their reading, writing, and critical thinking skills, their ability to retain and order information, worked out with us in the driver's seat? We're like TV showrunners who looked at Lord of the Rings and said, It has too many endings. Our show, The Walking Dead, will never have an ending, ever. And our show, Game of Thrones, will only need one ending to tell our story. Just the one. People will love that final episode. 
All of our shows will have strong female characters just like the ones 70s and 80s writers wrote into their stories, only ours will be entirely lacking flaws or personality or interest of any kind, and, and ours will sometimes be naked. Strong, powerful, naked role models. I'm subversive. I bought an upside-down cake from Walmart, and get this, you're, you're going to love it. I turned it upside down, so now it's twice as upside-down a cake. Of course, I dropped it on the floor while I was doing this, but still subversive. I am very much a creature of my generation. I am very, very good at spotting and being bothered by insincerity, inconsistency, dishonesty, hypocrisy, and empty, manipulative sentimentality. But what can I achieve? What about my ideas? They're mostly just about making fun of or criticizing other people's failures. I know my limits. I can see what's wrong and what's not true and what's not honest and what's not working. But this doesn't mean I should be president or anything, of anything. To do that, you need actual ideas of your own. I know my place. I am a high school English teacher because I can see mistakes, point them out, and suggest what would be better. I'm not a scholar writing new articles filled with new ideas about ancient texts. Every couple of years, someone says to me, well, if you can't find a church that works for you, then you should start your own. You really should. Yeah, right. Just what God needs. Yet another poorly attended, strongly opinionated church started by an asshole. Supply and demand is a thing. There is no demand for what I would supply, either as Prime Minister of England, the CFO of Amazon, the principal of a high school, or the head teaching pastor of some f***ing church. I've never even been asked once to speak for 20 minutes in a church, and I never will be asked. But like a shark supposedly does, I need to keep moving forward or I'll die. So I keep doing stuff, but I know my limits. About that, I can tell you when depression is a big problem for me, when I'm not moving forward, when I'm doing nothing, when nothing is asked and expected of me. Depression is always there, underneath waiting to have its wicked way, following me around like the old black dog, but not a comforting, affectionate one. It's the nasty little pink things nibbling venomously at my ankle flesh. So the more busy I am, the more people I'm talking to and things I'm doing, and especially new things I'm learning and discovering, and the more I'm making creative or expressive things, the more I am safe from being dragged under again. I live alone, so I have more than enough time for solitary reflection, too. It's a lifestyle, and the problem comes when there's too much nothing. No balance between busy and think time. When it's all think time, all day, I overthink everything. 30 was a bit of a thing for me. I've been right about most people and most things sucking and how and why, but what could I do for the world? In the year before Doug died, my roommates Bill and Dave had decided to move out. Dave wanted to live with his folks and not pay rent. Bill didn't want to live with me. He wanted to have a bachelor pad where I could bring girls and they wouldn't want to talk to me or anything and I'd not need to be told to lock myself in the room every moment they were on site. Because when Bill brought people we both worked with back home after the shift, I might be there and I knew them and they knew me and they often wanted to hang out. So Bill got his own place just around the corner with Troy living in the upstairs, keeping out of Bill's way, but helping pay rent. Both Troy and Bill got wives soon after using that bachelor pad, and they're both still married to them today, so there's that. This left me living in a townhouse I couldn't afford rent on, alone, with too much time to think, with signs that Nortel was going out of business, having built a business practice around pure blind optimism, positivity. I knew what was wrong with Nortel's business practices, but it wasn't like I was still going to have a job because of that. I had not enough going on in my week either. Even at work, there was suddenly no work to do, 
leaving us sitting at our desks all week using the new and interesting internet, checking out Napster and waiting to be laid off. That's danger time for me. So I got a nice little apartment in my favorite nice little town around here, Almont, Ontario, and got a cat which I named Sid after Sid Barrett who started and named Pink Floyd. Troy's cat was named Floyd for similar reasons. I trained Sid, or Sid trained me, that he wanted to meow at me whenever I said hello to him. Hello? What would you like? Hello? 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 Apparently, cats meow to talk to us and are seldom very vocal with other animals apart from hisses or growls. Kittens meow at their mothers, and people talk to cats, so it's anyone's guess whether cats think they are talking to us just like humans or meowing at us like we're their mothers. And the job at Nortel soon did end, along with their company, and I couldn't afford to record at Studio B, had no machines to play the ADAT tapes I'd recorded on there, Studio B itself went out of business, and I had nothing to do but sit alone in my apartment trying to find work. I started a website and blog, started arguing with Christians on internet forums, and started recording music into my computer in earnest. I picked up the web design job from my old roommate Pete for a few months. Doug died. Michael and Bethany got married. Mark got increasingly seriously no fun and started getting into alcohol-related problems with the police. And the web design company went out of business too. I had been taking kung fu because of how incredibly good exercise is for depression and how I couldn't seem to stay focused on any exercise that wasn't practicing to fight people. Now I couldn't afford kung fu, so after having earned two sashes, I had to quit. Many more weeks of mostly nothing. More unlimited time for thinking dark thoughts. More alone time for Mike. So many things were over. I tried to negotiate with elders from my assembly, and they told me they wouldn't be talking to me anymore. So any attempt to work with them was over. Doug was dead. Michael and Bethany moved away from the Pennsylvania area, where we'd all congregate, and the whole Pennsylvania group of friends was largely over, too. The recording in a studio thing was over, as was a lot of playing live music with other musicians. The friendships with Dave and Bill were out of steam as well, after having been roommates. My twenties were over, and all of my attempts at a career had fallen down around my ears. Everything seemed over. I was out of friends, out of money, out of options, and I had nothing but time to think about all of it. Depression was waiting for me, though my meeting wasn't, even if I was repeatedly tempted to backslide right back into that Nepean assembly if they'd talked to me. In retrospect, every time this sort of thing has happened, it has pushed me to take a leap forward. It's either been that, or get yanked back, pulled under by all the nothing, by reliving the worst parts of my past without even writing something to show for all of that. So, I put myself $40,000 in debt in one day and got into an American teacher training program just over the border. I'm mainly only depressed whenever I'm doing nothing for any length of time, so I wasn't depressed while I was getting teacher qualifications, just like I hadn't been while I leaped from high school into university, from university into working at the Christian school, from getting fired by the Christian school to working in group homes and buying recording gear, from the group homes not leading anywhere career-wise into working at Nortel, having roommates and a townhouse in the city, and using a recording studio and taking kung fu, to being laid off and starting a presence on the internet, recording with computers, going to teacher training, and getting certified. From doing supply work, to getting hired to teach English in a classroom, and moving to Elgin, Ontario. From them not needing me the following school year, to getting hired at Carlton Place High School, and moving back to Almond. From having Sid the cat suddenly die from a congenital heart defect, to picking up another black cat I named Roger, after Roger Waters of Pink Floyd. 
from having Roger die at 10 years old from an illness we never really figured out to getting another cat named Mason after Nick Mason from Pink Floyd. From having a landlord intent on trying to raise my rent higher than he was legally allowed to, to me moving out and buying a house on a small lake in the woods where I can record music as loudly as I want and where Mason kills every mouse that dare sneak into the basement. Each of these stages was a chance to get pulled under and drown in my own self in that well of dark thoughts and feelings, which has certainly continued to be added to over the years given how things have tended to work out. Doug is only one of many people I've known who took their own lives. Every time that happens, it makes you think about yours. When you live in an area for decades, you tend to find there are more and more people who don't want to talk to you than the opposite. You know almost everyone, and almost everyone is tired of you and your stuff. So it's like I have leaped forward each time, desperately avoiding the venomous, nasty pink things which are snapping at my heels, trying to bring me down, trying to feast on my will to live. Every time my cat, which has been my only roommate and with me through thick and thin, dies suddenly, I cry like I don't cry for any other reason. Then I get another, different one a couple of months later, and start a different friendship with an entirely different mini-predator personality. Every time a girl I would die for ends up marrying someone else, committing suicide, or leaving the country, I reflect on just how much of a horrible wife she would really have been. Now, if I had listened to my upbringing and my church group, Almost every leap forward would have been strongly advised against. Don't take English at university. It's man's corrupt literature and his empty attempts at wisdom. Don't make friends with worldly people, especially musicians, their corrupting influences. Don't make friends with brethren people who are more interesting, passionate, exciting, and creative. They're troublemakers. Don't get worldly roommates. They'll lead you astray. Don't go to movies. Don't go to live music. Don't perform live music. Don't record music unless it's good, uplifting, edifying, positive Christian hymns. Definitely don't go to bars with live music, have a drink with local musicians, and agree to record them on your songs. Never talk about negative stuff that troubles you. That's negative and not edifying or uplifting. Don't criticize or try to figure out what's wrong with the meeting and its doctrine. It's never pretended to be perfect. Just keep on showing up and shutting up. Don't laugh at any of it. None of it is quaint, odd, or contradictory. It's certainly not funny, especially not messages of God's love and wild whipped cream. Don't take Kung Fu. It's Eastern mysticism. Don't form bands and play in, write music for, practice with, book gigs for, and look to make recordings with them. The musician lifestyle is a path to damnation and ruin, and you'll never be famous anyway, which is a good thing for you. Don't use the internet to reach out and connect with musicians who were heroes of yours back in the day and have them add you on social media. Don't talk to single worldly women. They might one time take an interest in you sexually, and you won't be able to say no, because remember, men can't do that. 
be a teacher if you like, but again, not English. Filthy novels and plays. Maybe business or, or math, geography? Don't form a band with another guy at Teachers College, grab Troy, and play on the morning show at the local TV station. You guys had barely just formed a band yet. You didn't know what you were doing. What are you going to sing for us this time around? Um, this one's called Broken. Okay, take it away. Candid here on Breakfast at the New R.O. Is there more, more to this? So let me know where this is gonna go. Cause I won't give it a reason to fail. I'll do all I can to help you understand that. Looking forward to your upcoming CD, yet to be titled. Yet Thanks be for that. Very nice. Well, thank you. Yeah, Gary, uh, who's with you here this morning? Um, Mike on guitar and mm -hmm. vocal, and uh, Troy's over there picking away. <laughs> His guitar. His guitar, yeah. <laughs> Let's clarify that. <laughs> now, not, not the nice. two of you met in school, yeah. Teachers College, yeah. and you're both working, looking for work right now. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. uh, pretty tough, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is, but you know, it gives us time to do this, I guess. Mm -hmm. and, we both have stuff that we're plugging away on, so good we, line, keep, good we keep busy. Excellent. Don't have a website or blog except maybe to post positive, uplifting Christian stuff. People with their arms upraised, silhouetted against sunsets, the ocean, a mountain, stuff like that. Don't make YouTube videos unless they're seeking to bring lost souls to Christ. Don't take sword lessons. Why would a born-again Christian do that? Don't go around and meet the Christians from all the other churches and see what their Sunday morning routine is like. They're drinking water all right, but from mud puddles. So many of them preach doctrine that is deeply unscriptural. Don't collect childhood retro toys and video game consoles. That's a waste of money, and you're an adult now. Don't write books reflecting on your past, and if you do, don't make an audio version of it and put it on the internet for folks to listen to and think about. I Was a Teenage Pharisee by Mike Moore. This book is gratefully and sincerely dedicated to the Bethany who said my previous book was missing something as to my walk with the Lord nudging me to write this one. I don't know if I've fixed that problem, but here is my best attempt. Grateful thanks to everyone who shared a story or quotable blurb and for those who helped me proofread and set up this book. It's just dredging up the past and will hurt brethren people. Don't use the internet to connect with disenfranchised brethren people who have been hurt from all corners of the globe. The sad truth is that some of the adults did know and did not want to discredit the assembly in any way. Those little girls were abandoned to maintain the reputation of the Plymouth Brethren. After several weeks of tears and anger and many discussions with my daughters about how they wanted this to be handled, I called the police. We all knew what would happen if we simply went to the assembly. Scott would be disciplined. At best, he would be put out of fellowship, and how did that protect any of the other children he would meet in the future? At worst and most likely, Scott and his influential friends would discredit the girls, and we would be the ones disciplined. We decided that the only course open to us was to hand the mess over to the police. That's negative. Why would you do that? Don't take online courses in reading Middle English and Old Norse. Why would anyone do that? Welcome to uh, the Canterbury Tales class. Um, I am excited to get to 
uh, Chaucer's greatest work. That Chaucer guy was a pervert. Don't write books of mythology and fairy tales under a pseudonym and put them in your classroom and let kids unknowingly choose to do assignments analyzing them if they like. Book 2, Chapter 3, Into the Mirror As soon as Beowulf hit the bloody water, they grabbed him. The water boiled with furred backs and fins, tusks, teeth, and tentacles. They dragged him down and tried to tear at him, but his mail shirt protected him. Do not make a podcast. No one will ever listen to it, which is probably for the best if a bunch of it is just going to be negative and will hurt brethren people. But I've never had a child of my own body, so I guess I've never really lived a life or done anything yet. Unlike most people raised like me, I remember way too much of it. Like too many people raised like me, I am alone all of the time with nothing to do besides find things to do. And so, I do that. The world is filled with Christian people, some of them brethren, who wonder why on earth I just keep making things like this. If they talk to me about it, which they won't, I would tell them, well, I make them so I don't want to die. And it works. Now go tell your kids to always go to church and never wear too much black lest they end up just like me, a fate worse than depth. There's a reason Ernest Hemingway drank so much and wrote so much. Probably had a nest of thoughts and feelings in his head that he couldn't cope with. I don't know, but maybe if he'd written even more and drank and took Ritalin a bit less, he might not have eaten his favorite shotgun for breakfast to eject them one morning. Or maybe he would have anyway. Neil Gaiman says, make good art. Remember, whatever discipline you're in, whether you're a musician or a photographer, a fine artist or a cartoonist, a writer, a dancer, a singer, a designer, whatever you do, you have one thing that's unique. You have the ability to make art. And for me, and for so many of the people I've known, that's been a lifesaver, the ultimate lifesaver. It gets you through good times and it gets you through the other ones. Sometimes life is hard. Things go wrong in life and in love, and in business, and in friendship, and in health, and in all the other ways that life can go wrong. And when things get tough, this is what you should do. Make good art. I'm serious. I would pare that down to make stuff. Always have stuff you're making. Life secret from me to you. It doesn't have to be good. Just do it anyway. Doing things is the point. This song started as another lyric attempting to depict the depression, death, and misery that is always waiting for me, being followed by, being in danger of being consumed by the darkness, the demons, the dragon, the smiling little agents of the depths of despair. The devil doesn't appear to want me to play the blues and sell him my soul. He wants me to give up, shut up, stop trying, and slowly despair, wither, and die. The lyrics show the confusion about depression as to whether it's a thing that's external to you, that pursues you and gets in if you let it, or something inside you all the time that you need to keep under control, or is actually even more a part of you than that. I suppose Soren Kierkegaard, smug bastard, would probably say my depression is like a smoke detector only for boredom, for lack of emotional, social, and intellectual stimulation. Whenever there's none of those things, it goes off. The descending D riff in the song was inspired by Alice Cooper's song The Awakening from his Welcome to My Nightmare album.
I tried to rip off the overall feeling of those sorts of Alice Cooper songs as much as possible. Once again, this wasn't a song that I'd ever really done much of a recording of in the past with anyone, so last summer I went ahead and did one all by myself. Played the drums in bits. I did that heartbeat kick I enjoyed in the past. Did some mournful harmony voices. enjoyed the tremolo effect that's built into my old 70s Vox tube amp. This was the first recording I tried out a guitar trick called Nashville tuning that I saw on YouTube. I'm no longer in contact with Bill, who anyway does not live around here, so I can't borrow his 11-string, 12-string guitar, and I have still never bit the bullet and bought one of my own. So when I saw that I could just buy 12-string guitar strings and put those six strings that my six-string doesn't have on a spare acoustic six-string, I had to try it. First I played my regular six-string with the regular strings. played my spare six-string guitar, but with the six 12-string strings that a normal six-string doesn't have on it instead of the conventional ones. Then I put the two together. Le voila! Fake 12-string guitar. Apparently Tom Petty albums do this with electric, so it sounds like someone sprung for a pricey Rickenbacker electric 12-string when all they did was put the six odd strings for one on a spare, regular Rickenbacker 6-string guitar. For good measure, I also put the capo ridiculously up the guitar neck and tried to make a chimey harp effect up there. I used a heavily reverbed boron to make colossal fuds. And had some fun with whammied feedback. Thought it had left to stay 
But now I must conclude it never really went away. Head rankled and stifled under a piece that I had learned to feel. Madness hiding under his demons. Don't die another day, another death, another life, another lie. Demons are never really gone. The back to take a bite. Shattered spirits held fast with glue. Panic fire stifled by stuff in the blue. Questions multiply and doubt is strong. Fear burrows warm like something's there. Something's wrong Demons Don't die Another day Another death Another life Another lie Demons Are never really gone The black take a piece When you're Not kill it, but it will eat me if I only let it and leave it to run free. But I can't gouge its name up there on the tomb that it dug for me. I think that there's room. Another life, another life Demons are never really gone Back to take a piece when you're not strong On a pile on dark earth with guitar and pen Till it gets out again Faith is the pain of the demon despair Crushing it flat Denying it Argue what you will But this is true a demon will do anything that you let it do.